Well, good evening. We are thankful for your attendance this evening. Hope that we can be of encouragement to one another as we always try to be. We appreciate the opportunity uh, to be together and your attendance here. It certainly is that as we uh, enjoy a time of fellowship as well as a time of study. We're going to continue tonight what uh, started last year as a study of words, a word study. Uh, as I try to remind you of several times, it was meant to be a, a weekly study, 52 words that you could go through in a year, a congregation could go through in a year, but I think it's beneficial for us uh, maybe not to tie up every Sunday night with that or, or every service uh, to do that, that we can kind of spread it out. So uh, we're up to what is week 13 in the book, uh, but it'll be month 13 for us as we turn over into the month of January. And we are uh, close to the end um, of a section that is on Christian character. We've talked about uh, some words that have to do with our Christian character. Uh, mercy was one. Um, we're going to talk about righteousness tonight. God be willing, next month we'll come together, we'll talk about holiness uh, and then we're going to get into some other categories of words. And I hope that it's been beneficial to you to consider some of these things. Um, I think it's a pretty good way for us to try to take a look at a word without doing a complete word study. Uh, maybe you think about scholars, you think about uh, preachers who are very uh, well-versed in the original languages. You can spend hours uh, simply on one word, breaking down uh, the many verses, the many ways that it's used. But it, it helps us to just touch on some of these concepts, some of these ideas. As I was putting together sermons for this year or just kind of mapping out uh, some of the sermons that we'd like to cover during the course of 2020, um, I was looking ahead at some of the words and, and towards the middle end of the year, uh, God be willing, we're going to look at some family type words, uh, mothers, fathers, uh, those kinds of things. And so, you know, it'll be more than maybe some of these deeper meaning Christian character type of words. But I hope that it's been uh, encouraging to you to even for just a few moments consider the way that some of these are used and to make application as we use the devotional book that goes along with this study. For this week, we're going to talk about righteousness. I think this is interesting for us to consider uh, because I believe that righteousness is a word that sometimes we're afraid of. Uh, maybe for back of, lack of a better term or lack of a better way of saying it. And in connection with righteousness, next month we're going to talk about holiness. And so to me, I think what happens is, and we're going to come back to this at the end of the lesson, uh, but just to kind of be begin to get you to think about it, righteousness and holiness are sometimes things that we, I think, equate with perfection or the perfect Christian. Or the preacher, or the elders, or, or one of those older ladies that we think of as just being great. And we, we, we equate righteousness and holiness with that. We say, well, that's not me. I can't do that. I can't attain, obtain that. And so we set that aside. But hopefully through our study tonight, and again, uh, if we're able to look at holiness next month, we'll understand that it's not perfection. It's not something to be afraid of or to set aside and say, well, it's not for me. I can't do that. Uh, but instead, there's a, a, something that we can obtain there, that we can do. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit through the lesson tonight. Uh, first of all, we usually begin, of course, with the Old Testament, looking at some Old Testament words. So in your Hebrew, if you have your outline there, uh, the word that is used oftentimes uh, in different forms in the Old Testament is sadak. Uh, and so that is one form of it here. There's another one uh, that has uh, sort of, of course, weird lettering as we're not used to and uh, sort of translating it or making it into English. But the idea of sedeca, 
And so these words are used in the Old Testament, uh, and they're translated righteousness. They're also translated, especially that second word there, the sedica, um, in a various ways, such as honesty. And so as you think of the way that we use words today, you think of uh, words that go along with the idea of righteousness, honesty, justice, merits, right, uh, righteous, righteous acts, righteous deeds. All of these things are, are various ways that these two words, in particular the second one as well, is translated. Now what's interesting, as many of you know, and, and just even many of our uh, simple ways that we use the English la language, the English language sometimes sort of takes things and it can take on a new meaning. When we think about the English language, dictionaries usually define righteousness as behavior, and I think that's what's in our minds, behavior that is morally justifiable or right. The behavior of a righteous person is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, or uprightness. One of the things that I think the English word uh, goes back to a, a meaning of right-wise, R-I-G-H-T, wise, in the right way. Well, that's kind of what we're getting at. That's kind of what the Bible is saying. But both of these words there carry along with it these other words, again, from our English language that we would kind of use, including honesty and justice that go along with that. It is clearly seen in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, that righteousness is seen as a divine attribute, a God attribute, if you will, a divine attribute, and one that humans should strive to develop. A divine attribute of God that we should be striving for. Sounds like all kinds of ideas in the New Testament that we hear. Sounds like all kinds of words that we look at, such as, we'll come to holiness. But holiness, be holy as God is holy. That's what we're striving for. And so with righteousness, there's this same kind of idea that it is a divine attribute that humans should strive to develop. We go forward into the New Testament and even the Septuagint. Some of you are familiar with that uh, phrase or that word. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we see this word, dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. Now, this is the one that is most often uh, translated in the New Testament as righteousness. It's interesting that when we scholars go back and look at the Greek language, it was used in secular Greek language or literature primarily to describe conduct in relation to others. So again, righteousness and our conduct in relation to others, especially regarding the rights of others in business and in legal matters. It is frequently used as a declaration that one is innocent of a crime for which he has been accused. And it is contrasted with wickedness. Well, that's what I think we kind of use it as. We don't get so much into this idea of the legal matters or the court system or even in business. But we kind of equate it with this idea of wickedness and righteousness. And I don't know if that's so wrong or that that can't help us accomplish what God wants us to know. Um, but that is certainly one way that it's used. The person who lacks righteousness is self-centered and neither reveres God nor respects man. 
And so it can be translated a few different ways. There are some other words that are used in the New Testament uh, that is translated as loving kindness or uh, grace or judgment even sometimes. This word, uh, dikaiosune, is used no less than 228 times in the New Testament. And if you've got your outline there, at least 40 times in the book of Romans alone. This form, or one form or another of the word righteousness, 228 times in the New Testament and at least 40 times in Romans. One of the writers who was writing about these ideas here and sort of uh, carrying out trying to explain this said, of course, that if we were going to preach a series of sermons on righteousness, that we would want to camp out in Paul. And of course, by that he means in Romans, in Ephesians, and Philippians, and even in the pastoral epistles. Uh, It even comes from the idea, if you've got your Bibles, look in Romans chapter 4 for just a moment. um, Because we looked at Romans 4 this morning. I didn't necessarily, had not planned to use this until I was looking at the lesson a little bit more this afternoon, kind of refreshing uh, myself on it. But in chapter 4... Paul uses Abraham as an example of justification. This is what we touched on this morning. Declaring righteous on the basis of faith. Before he is circumcised, before he sacrifices his son, long before the law, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, Moses informs the reader that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. When you look at Romans 4 there, uh, it's really verses 3 through 5. There in verse number 3 of Romans 4, you see this idea of the quotation there from Genesis 15 and verse 6, that it was counted to him for righteousness. And then over even in verses 20 through 25, where we were this morning, the same idea carried out uh, that Abraham was justified uh, because he was believing, because he was Uh, following after God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul discusses this a lot in Romans, and certainly as well in Romans chapter 4. Let's talk about a few of the devotional uh, topics that go along with this idea. Uh, I kind of like these because it gives us an idea of making application for ourselves. If you've got your Bible, look in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The first thought that I'd like to to put forth for you to consider tonight is the idea of a righteous crisis. We have a problem. We have a serious problem, in fact, we might say. In fact, to call it a, a righteous crisis is not too much of a stretch. It's a problem of epic proportions. And the problem is, is that righteousness is the required state of being To live in God's good graces. Let me say that again so we can understand. Righteousness is the required state of being to live in God's good graces. We have to be righteous. But we humans are not able to do that on our own. Scripture has some bad news for us and that is is that we are not righteous. Not even one of us comes close to being righteous. Take it from the preacher there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse number 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I know you're familiar with this idea that people would take one verse of scripture and sort of twist it or turn it. Or one verse of scripture and just read it and say, well, I I quit there. And of course, if a person were to open up their Bible and pick out Ecclesiastes 7.20... 
at just a random shot, they would see. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The psalmist, going forward or thinking about Psalms, Psalm chapter 14 and verses 2 and 3, the psalmist agrees with this reflection. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And we go forward even to the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, we fast forward to the Apostle Paul's letter again to the Romans, this time chapter 3, and in it he repeats the psalmist's sentiment. None is righteous, no, not one. Not one understands, or no one understands, no one seeks God. And of course, if you know Romans 3, you know verse 23 that we are familiar with, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's quite a righteous crisis. That's quite a predicament there for us. This is a problem that we cannot control, that we cannot rectify on our own. Righteousness is necessary for communion with God, but it's nowhere to be found in humanity. And I say this a lot, I think we said it this morning and already in this lesson, but if we're not careful, we get in the business of talking about everyone else and saying, well, that's not me. And so we say, well, this world is full of evil. I mean, there's all kinds of terribleness around the world today. That's not us. I don't partake in that. But here in all three of these passages, there is no one, no, not one, who is able to escape this sinful way. And it is a problem. We desperately need what we don't have. But of course, if you read Romans chapter 3, if you don't stop at verse 23, but you go on to verse number 24, Paul continues on by saying, he observes that everyone is a sinner, that everyone comes up far short of God's glory. But then he says that everyone can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have a righteous crisis. The world has a problem and a predicament. We cannot make ourselves justified or righteous. We are incapable of doing it for ourselves, but it must come from an outside source. It must be the result of divine power. As we said just a few moments ago, it's a divine attribute. It's something that only God can impute. And that's a word that we'll talk about tonight to us. And according to Paul, it has and it is. The righteousness that we so desperately need comes from God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, if you were to randomly pick out Ecclesiastes 7 or Psalm 14 or Romans, part of Romans 3, yeah, there's some bad news there. There's a problem. But, of course, as God does, as our Father, he doesn't leave us hanging. Paul, there writing, doesn't leave us hanging because in verse 24, we see that our problem is solved. The crisis is averted. There is a problem, but God has sent forth his son. And we can be thankful for that. And may he be praised for that. For our righteous crisis is not really a crisis in the end for us today. Certainly, Christ has come. He has shed his blood. And we can enjoy that righteousness that will come from God. Secondly tonight, a second study that I would mention to you and share with you here is the idea of being in pursuit. 
in pursuit. There are two types of righteousness you might see from the Bible. Uh, the first one is the kind that is given. Uh, this is the kind that we've kind of touched on already for just a few moments. But in the Bible, this is called imputed righteousness. When Jesus, the truly righteous one, the truly righteous being, suffered the full weight of sin on the cross, he made truly sinful beings like you and like me righteous. So it is given in a sense. It is given to us. The second kind of righteousness is the kind uh, that is that can be developed, that should be pursued. Now, maybe these are two different types of righteousness, but, but maybe we could think about them as two types of the same coin, if you will. The gift of righteousness, the kind that's given through Jesus Christ, should compel us to seek righteousness in our lives. And alternatively, we can only seek it if we have first received it from God. It's an interesting thought. It maybe could get a little deep if we're not too careful there, but, but it's maybe two sides of the same coin. That yes, we should seek after it, but we must first receive it from God. If you've got your Bible, look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to explain this a little further, to carry this out uh, a little further for us. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 22. The Apostle Paul encourages here his young protege, Timothy, to flee youthful lusts or flee youthful passions and, notice there, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those who seek the Lord with sincerity and a pure heart will do two things, according to Paul. Those who, will, those who seek the Lord with sincerity and a pure heart will do two things. Number one, they will flee youthful lust or youth, youthful passions, if you will. The power of flesh, the power of the flesh in the sense of earthly sense, the power of the flesh tugs at people of all ages. I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we will look at our young people and say, well, it's only a youthful problem only. It's, it's only something they have to deal with. As I get older, the, these things of the flesh are not for me. I don't have to worry about that. No, the power of the flesh tugs at people of all ages, but certainly those of us who have moved on past those youthful years can look back and see that maybe it's a little harder at times, maybe with the friends that we have around us, that sometimes our youth seem to face unique temptations that we may not face as we get older. But Paul reminds us that being young is no excuse. It's no excuse for satisfying these ungodly desires. Young and old alike are called to flee, to get away, to run away from behaviors that bring about destruction to their lives. So if we are going to sincerely seek the Lord with a pure heart, well, number one, we will flee youthful lust. But number two, he says there, we will do what? We will pursue righteousness along with faith and love and peace though we are made righteous by or through the sacrifice of jesus christ righteousness is a also a lifestyle that we're called to chase after something that we should be seeking or pursuing something that we cannot just set aside as unattainable that is something that's too hard the psalmist says in Psalm 106 and verse number 3, Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. 
As we tried to emphasize over and over this morning, it has to permeate every bit of our being. It has to be a part of all of our lives. From the first thing in the morning to the last thing at night, and yes, everywhere in between, God being a part of our lives and pursuing righteousness has to be what we are after. So righteousness is not only something that's been ascribed to us, given in a sense, but it's also something that we do. And if we commit ourselves, the psalmist says, if we will commit ourselves to righteousness, to doing righteousness, then we will be blessed. It's something that we have to pursue. And then third and finally this evening, if you've got your Bibles, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To me, this was maybe the one that drives home the point uh, the most for me of these different devotionals that the writers used. Imagine a couple of scenarios with me, if you will. Imagine that you are about to run in the 200-meter dash, the 200-meter race in the Olympic Games. Now, yes, for most of us, this would require a lot of imagination. I understand. But imagine, if you will, for just a moment, that you're going to be racing 200 meters in the Olympic Games. And as you take your place, you look around, and as if this were a true story, most of us would do, we would glance around at the other competitors and possibly realize that we're in over our head. We're not ready for this. We're not in good enough shape. We've not trained nearly enough to be able to compete. But right before the starting gun is fired, that old guy that many of us know, who's not quite as fast as he was a few years ago, Usain Bolt, steps in and says, I will take your place. Not only will I take your place in this race, I will run instead of you, and you can also stand on the podium and receive the award. And that sounds like something that we might be after. That sounds like something that we might could do. But imagine this. You stand looking at a cross. You're keenly aware that because of the sin in your life that separates you from God, that justice, and there's a deep word there for you as well, but justice demands that you receive the punishment that sin deserves, which is death. We know that to be the case. Even a cruel death on the cross. And as the soldier walks toward you, again, we don't even do this you know, anymore, People aren't punished this way, so it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination as well. But as the soldier walks towards you to nail your hands and your feet to the cross, that Jesus comes forward and yells, but wait. And he looks you in the eye and says, I want to take your place on that cross. I will hang there and die instead of you so that you can stand before God. And in a similar sense to the 200 meter award, you can receive the award in my place. That you can stand before God, clothed in my righteousness, pure and holy. Now, of course, as we know, we can stop imagining that the second scenario is not true, because it is. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21, For he made him, of course, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, who didn't deserve it, to be sin for us. And notice that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he never knew sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God. Righteousness in this passage simply means being in a right place before God. 
And according to Paul, it has nothing to do with our effort and everything to do with the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing that we should do, that we don't need to be obedient, that we should not be doing good works, that we should not be obeying every command of Jesus. But yet, at the same time, it doesn't matter how many of those things we did if it weren't for Jesus willing to take my place, your place, the place of the world. To say, not only will I go to bat for you, will I run the race, not only will I die the death on the cross that is demanded, and yes, even deserved, not only will I do that, but that will allow you to accept the reward, to stand before God clothed in righteousness. You know, if you've got your Bible, look at one more passage in the uh, book of Isaiah. I didn't put this on the screen, I didn't know if we'd have time, but real quickly, Isaiah chapter 61. The story is told of a man who received an envelope that he had been invited to see the queen. And so he was excited about that, but he also received a note that he said he had to wear a $10,000 suit. And he said, well, I don't have $10,000, you know, how am I going to do that? And at the same time, he receives a call that, from someone that says, I know you're invited. I've got a $10,000 suit, and I will let you wear this $10,000 suit. So the man shows up and he's got his invitation and he's got his $10,000 suit. And he, as he's about to go in, he hears another guy saying, but I have an invitation. I got my invitation. And they're telling this man, I'm sorry, sir, even with an invitation, you can't see the queen in that suit. So as the story is told, the person who's observing this says, I can, either ha- I can have either one of two responses. I can look at this guy and say, you pathetic slob, imagine trying to see the queen dressed in that suit, the one that you have on. But if I respond like that, haven't I forgotten something? That I'm actually wearing somebody else's suit. Sure, it's mine now, but I didn't pay for it. Shouldn't I rather respond with compassion? Oh, that poor guy. What a pity that he didn't have a generous benefactor like I've got. So when we think about not only the verses that we just looked at, 2 Corinthians 5 there in verse number 21, with the idea that he made him who knew no sin to know sin, or as Isaiah 61 in verse 10 says there, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I am now clothed in God's righteousness. You see, I'm afraid that we set righteousness aside and we make it something that we're afraid of. Something that we feel like we can't obtain, that we can't do. And so then we don't worry about it in the same way. It's not something to be afraid of. In fact, I'm afraid that also we associate it with self-righteous or uh, self-holiness, holier than thou, we oftentimes say. But that's not the case either. Righteousness is interesting because of this. And think about this as we conclude our thoughts. It is interesting that righteousness is both something that we can never attain on our own. And at the same time, it is something to be sought. We all are familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 33, that we should seek first the kingdom of God and what? And his righteousness. It's not something that we can earn on our own, something that we can do with our own merits or even our own strength, no matter how strong we were. 
but it's something to be sought after. And may we go forward tonight and through our lives, not being afraid of it, not thinking that it's something that people will look at us and say, well, you're self-righteous or you're holier than thou, but something that we should be seeking to obtain. That's something that we should be seeking after, the righteousness of God. And so tonight, as we are assembled here and we are about to sing this song that has been selected, uh, maybe you've never become a child of God. We'll be singing to encourage you. It's not something to fear or be afraid of but something that you can obtain by submitting yourself to Christ, to God in baptism for the remission of your sins. Maybe you've done that, but you've wandered away. You sort of set these things aside and we'll think about them later. It's something that maybe I don't know if I can or can't do. You can. You should seek after righteousness. Pursue it. Wear that coat, if you will, in the sense there, the robe of righteousness. You don't have to leave tonight in perfection, but you do need to leave in the right standing with God. We're thankful for his first law of pardon, for sending his son, for his plan of salvation, and his second law of pardon. That we don't have to leave with that fear on our hearts and minds. Tonight, if you need to be made right, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.